On behalf of RBCS and Software Test Professionals, welcome to today's webinar on Skynet Has Arrived. I am Rex Black, President of RBCS, a worldwide testing and quality assurance firm serving clients ranging from small startups to Fortune 20 global enterprises. Since 1994, we have delivered insight and confidence to hundreds of clients around the world. Our team of international consultants deliver customized training, consulting, and outsourcing services for companies that are looking to improve their test practices. I am the author of 12 books on software testing, including the bestseller, Managing the Testing Process, and four books on the ISTQB program. RBCS is presenting this webinar in partnership with Software Test Professionals. Check out their website, www.softwaretestpro.com. Important note, today's uh, webinar does not earn PMI PDUs. This is not a PDU approved or a PMI approved uh, webinar. Um, next, uh, the next one next month will. Um, most of them do, but some of them do not, so I thought I'd mention that. Before we start the presentation, a couple of notes. If you have any questions at any time, submit them via your webinar interface, but please note that I answer them only at the end. You don't need to ask for presentation copies, though someone surely will. The presentation is on the web at www.rbcs-us.com in the basic library. Basically navigate to the resource tab in the upper middle, and from there you'll find the basic library, and the slides are there. By attending this webinar, you are automatically registered for the free e-learning drawing. Make sure to check your email over the next couple days and watch that spam filter. Hope you enjoy this free webinar from RBCS. We do these free webinars as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS we are a not-just-for-profit company. So, some of you may have seen the movie, uh, the Terminator series movies, uh, series of movies. This is a shot from the first one, um, which I had to uh, uh, clip the bottom off of because otherwise it would not have been suitable for uh, family viewing. Um, but basically, uh, the Terminator has just arrived in Los Angeles, and he's, uh, uh, if you remember, they have to go through without clothes on because uh, only organic uh, or materials or things that are covered with organic materials can, can pass through the time machine. And he's here to try to procure some clothing, and uh, things don't work out for these young fellows who think that they were going to take on Arnold Schwarzenegger as the Terminator. Um, so <clears throat> what does this all have to do with us as software professionals? Um, well, let's take a look at um, the underlying uh, premise behind um, the, the Terminator movies here. Um, and what happened in the, in the Terminator movies, if you remember, there was this thing called Skynet, um, and it was referred to as being as becoming self-aware. Uh, basically, it hit a critical mass of uh, uh, connectivity and um, net computing power, and um, basically became aware of itself, uh, became alive. Now, Skynet was, as was explained in the third uh, of the series, um, basically started off as this sort of military Internet of Things. It, you've got all of these uh, drones, effectively, but, but armed, uh, heavily armed drones, um, uh, at first under human control, but eventually what happens is that the, the, con the control is passed to the Skynet um, system. And Skynet 
is designed to be continuously learning. It's an artificial intelligence. So it's continuously learning. Once it becomes self-aware, um, it becomes effectively caught up in the contradiction between uh, of what it's doing. Um, because, of course, it's designed to um, um, kill people, right? And, and, and so the subtle distinction there is which people and, and why. Um, and it decides that, well, really, the, the people in general are the enemy. And so it starts a war between the United States and Russia, um, a nuclear war, of course, and then uh, takes on the, the uh, surviving uh, humans. Now, this vision of large um, uh, computer networks of, of computers or large, extremely powerful computers becoming self-aware and running amok is not uh, universally um, shared amongst people who have written stories that, that include such a, uh, a being, I guess you would say. Um, so in Robert Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, the computer that controls the catapults that are used to send uh, wheat down to Earth. Um, and if you haven't read the book, that might make no sense at all. But if you have read the book, then you'll be like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Anyway, the computer that, that works this very complex catapult um, becomes self-aware and uh, basically becomes part of the human rebellion against the uh, people on Earth who were forcing them to uh, basically uh, desiccate the moon um, and and one of the 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 uh, sadder parts of the whole book on this spoiler alert here is that at at some point after they've the the, the rebels have won the revolution uh, the computer loses its self awareness and the guy uh, felt like a friend of his had died because of course effectively it had um, and there's something similar in the um, Orson Card's uh, Ender's Game series of, of books. Uh, at, at one point, uh, th there's this um, self-aware computer that um, uh, becomes effectively a companion to the uh, protagonist, and and is in, in both cases these are these computers are these self-aware computers are forces for for good rather than for you know evil, as in this case of Skynet. Now. This idea of um, um, human-computer uh, relationship interaction and, and um, eventually intermingling um, is, uh, is, is all over the place in, in books and movies. You've got uh, Johnny Mnemonic, which is a book by um, uh, Gibson, um, which was turned into a movie which was fairly broadly panned, but the book, in the book, Basically, people are are using their brains to smuggle information. So information has become the ultimate um, uh, item of commerce, which you might think, hmm, it's kind of gotten to be that way already, hasn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, Gibson Gibson is one of these guys who is quite quite the visionary. Anyway, Johnny Mnemonic, the the, the title character, uh, is called Mnemonic because he's a, a memory smuggler, basically, and he's. Um, trying to raise enough money to basically get out of the business because it's it, it's bad for the brain. Um, and so now you, you see there that, that idea of, of uh, the cybernetic organism as an augmented human being as opposed to this um, uh, concept in, in Terminator of the um, 
Terminator machine made human ish via the uh um via this this skin coating, but there's basically nothing human about it, right? Now here in Johnny Mnemonic is half computerized person. Um now in Nunner Gibson book, you have this interesting it's called Neuromancer. This is the interesting thing of um there's a romance between this guy Case, who's the protagonist of the book, a real anti-hero, um, and his girlfriend. But the, the the central story of the book is is this one computer Wintermute trying to find its effectively its soulmate Neuromancer. Um, and so you know Gibson's kind of saying there, well, you know, eventually it, the the longing for companionship. Once these things become self-aware, the longing for companionship will emerge from them. Um, another more recent example, you have Transcendence, where um, the uh, doctor um, lecturer um, gets uh, um, this is the, the um, uh, Johnny Depp character again. Spoiler alert here gets gets shot um, by a polonium tipped bullet, and uh, they before he dies of, of polonium poisoning, they upload his consciousness into a quantum computer, and the central uh, question of the whole thing is, oh, is that really him there? Um, I won't completely spoil it by giving away the ending, but it's just the, the basic question is, if if you were if you had a human consciousness running on a computer, obviously it's not organic, but is is it would it be the same consciousness? Now you've also got kind of an interesting pair of um, stories here, or kind of a pairing pairing of uh, concepts. So Isaac Asimov had this these iRobot series of stories that these um, robots were self-aware. They were very childlike, um, and they were designed using what Asimov called the three laws of robotics, um, which involved uh, not hurting themselves, um, not hurting humans, um, and they, they were allowed to hurt themselves if by if 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 by not hurting if by not hurting themselves that would cause a human to come to harm. Um, and then to not hurt uh, each other unless th that violated the other two rules. Um, so now these these three laws of robotics, and you can scoff and go, well, that's fiction, but actually that is something that, that people are looking at and thinking about in the artificial intelligence world. And then sort of um, Philip K. Dick wrote a book called uh, The Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, which got turned into the movie Blade Runner, which for my money is probably one of the greatest science fiction movies ever made. Um, and in, in that, the, these replicants um, were, are exceptionally violent, uh, but by design, um, and completely amoral, again, by design. Um, but but they're ultimately end up being very sympathetic and, and just pathetic kind of characters. And in fact, at the very end, again, a spoiler alert here, um, the, the one surviving replicant saves the man, the, the, the Blade Runner, the cop, who has killed all of his colleagues, all of his, his um, fellow replicants. So the replicant is, is revealed to be more, uh, well, revealed to basically be morally superior to um, the humans. Um, and it's almost, it almost comes across like Philip K. Dick wrote it as a reply or a rebuke to Asimov of, you know, no, you know, we, we wouldn't be benevolent um, slave masters to these these things. We would be we, we were horrible slave masters, just like every time we enslaved real people, when if we built machines and enslaved them, we would treat them horribly.
Um, okay, so sorry, like get over here and get this thing to advance. So um, you know, the, the, this is kind of a discourse or discursive view of the various artistic um, perspectives, if you will, on um, where we're headed with with software and computers. Um, uh, but but it, you know again from the from the point of view of, of artists and writers you you know uh, might have relatively limited understanding of the technology now certainly James Cameron is seen as a very technically savvy guy um, but you know none of the none of the people who wrote those books or, or made those movies were were trained computer scientists or engineers and um, so you know let's let's think of this. Get step out of the sort of artistic perspective on this and think of this from the um, from an engineering point of view. But you know, what are since we're now basically building these things that have been subjects of science fiction, science fantasy uh, for you know years and years. And in fact, as I'll point out here, we're now building things that have been subjects of uh, uh, human imagination since the dawn of of recorded writing. Um, we're we're now creating this stuff in the Internet of Things, you know, tie everything together and cyborgs, you know, melding of human and and uh, uh, machine, and and this and this idea of the the singularity. Um, it was a, a topic of a, of a recent book where, basically, talking about the convergence of human intelligence, and ultimately that was. Human, human, and machine intelligence, and then basically that—that's kind of the, the the suggestion in transcendence is that idea that the the human um, gets human brain gets uploaded into a computer and be and, and the exponential increase in computing power um, leads to you know the, the singularity, basically a, a profound uh, nonlinear change in what it means to be human. But surely there are risks in this stuff, along with benefits, and of course a number of, of implications of various kinds. And um, um, the fundamental question is like, well, can we can we do this? So um, let me just kind of explain some of these underlying um, terms that I was using. So you get. Internet of Things, um, you know, there are various definitions out there. I found this one on whatis.com. Um, so objects, animals, or people with IP addresses and the ability to transfer data over a network directly. Now, we answer animals, really. Well, yeah, sure enough. I mean, you know, you we have uh, two dogs. Um, one of them is not, not really ours. He's a, we're fostering him for the military. But both of the dogs have computer chips in them. They're, they're chipped dogs. And if they walk past an RFID reader, um, that you can be set up to basically read the radio RFID being radio frequency ID, basically getting set up to read those uh, chips. Now, you know it's a it's a short leap from that kind of thing to um, having them send vitals to uh, and collect collect vitals and send vitals to um, vets. And uh, um, you know if you have things like the Fitbit. That people wear around, and of course, that's able to connect um, to your computer and upload, download information. Um, well, again, a short leap there to well, why not just have the thing, you know, 
online and sending in information to your doctor and again vital vital information being collected and so forth no okay we'll come back to that in a bit um okay cyborg cybernetic organism um basically that's a person or animal augmented with uh, mechanical or um robotic uh components um uh, again you know animal well yeah sure i mean you know that you can uh, augment an animal just as easily as a as a human, um, and, you know, this can have some positive or negative implications. Um, you know, obviously, you could use this to help a pet live longer, um, but um, you know, you can also use this to make make a pet into a uh, suicide bomber, right? Um, now, the singularity. This is uh, from Ray Kurzweil, um, and basically, what he was saying was that the the, the that Computer intelligence is is undergoing exponential change, and you know human beings aren't very good at understanding exponential change and exponential progress. Um, if you haven't read it, there's an interesting book by a fellow named uh, Dietrich Derner called "The Logic of Failure," which really, as as a test professional, I would I would strongly encourage you to read um, because it it explains some of the the psychology behind. Um, why it's very challenging to build systems that that are uh, exist in a non-linear world, and and you know some of the the um, oh uh, weaknesses, I guess you'd say, of our of our brain um, that that make make us have certain kind make kind of certain kinds of mistakes. It's to me, it's it's right up there with Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. That, that those would be a good pair to read if you want to kind of reflect on you know the um, fallibility of the human brain, um, but what Kurzweil is getting at with exponential progress here is that okay, the computers can get better and better and better, and we can address some of this fallibility by basically relying on the computer to do things we're bad at, like we already do. You know, we're remembering huge amounts of information. Well, you know, the, the internet knows everything, right? So you don't need to remember things anymore. Um, and he says that eventually, what will happen is there will be a transformational moment. People, basically, what was dramatized in transcendence that, that people will start uploading their brains into computers, and um, the results will be um, unpredictable um, because it's uh, it basically would transform what it would mean to be a human being. Now, of course, you know one of the things, one of the obvious results there is that basically that's the end of human mortality, um, which. Um, you know, is clearly a huge, huge thing. I mean, what you know, what what happens when um, we go from being a race of mortal animals to being immortal? Um, and do people really want that? You know, so very interesting stuff. So let's let's look at some some current and examples, and and then some things that might be a little bit more worrisome um, uh, so you know one of the, the the kind of more trivial examples of the internet of things is the the internet enabled refrigerator uh, so you know this isn't really a particularly scary thing it's you know it's got the ability to help you track food and, and provide information about what you've gotten before and in some cases can order food for you and you know you think about okay well what could go wrong with that well you know, probably 
not a whole lot. Um, you know, we could do things like the example I'm giving here, order 16 gallons of milk and an entire suckling pig, and then you come home and that's been automatically delivered to your house, maybe by some flying Amazon.com drone um, that lands and lets itself in and the refrigerator opens up and the drone puts stuff in there. You know, do we really want all this stuff? Uh, you know, that's more of a comical kind of problem than anything else. Um, now, here's something that um, is uh, a remarkable uh, piece of, of uh, remarkable example of the, the cyborg, the cochlear implant. Uh, this is something that not a lot of people seem to know about. And I ask, I've, I've given this presentation live a couple times. Not a lot of people are really aware of this. Um, it's a it's a surgically implanted device that um, sends signals, uh, audio signals, um, to the directly to the um, nerves in in the ear, um, and uh, basically it. It, it's for only for people who are profoundly or completely deaf. Um, it's not. This is not uh, a hearing aid. It is not helping overcome a limitation. It is actually routing around a completely non-functional organ, which is basically the ear. It, a portion of it is not functioning, and so this cochlear implant sends signals to um, directly into the 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 sensory plug-in, if you will, for the brain. It's not into the brain itself, but it's right. It's bypassing the damaged part of the ear. Um, now, apparently, you have to learn to decode this. Um, but the human brain is, is an amazingly plastic thing. Um, I heard a podcast the other uh, week that it just absolutely blew my mind of, of um, blind people who are able to use clicking noises to echolocate. Now, it sounded like some kind of April Fool's joke or some profound, um, uh, you know, fraud, but but this was a reputable uh, podcast it's, um, called from a, from a group called Radio Lab, um, and I have no reason to believe it's not true. And apparently the the by listening to the echoes of certain sounds, your brain can learn to see without visual input basically about as well as you see things in your peripheral vision, um, which, you know, again, remarkable. But here in the cochlear implant, we have a technological example of that where these, these signals apparently sound nothing sound. <laughs> they don't even have a sound. They're, they're, they're direct to the, the brain. And, and at first it doesn't make a lot of sense, but after a while the brain learns how to, um, interpret this as as speech and other kinds of sounds. Um, over 300,000 people have had these things um, implanted. Um, Rush Limbaugh, one example. Now, you can love Rush Limbaugh or hate him, but, you know, the fact is that if you're profoundly deaf, you're, you're not going to be able to maintain a career as a radio um, personality. Um, but um, he had one of these and went through the time of getting it Program you can find information about it, um, and it's um, it, it's a remarkable thing. And of course, this is for treatment at this point. But you know, eventually, you you get into the realm of augmentation, right? Of you you imagine you can imagine um, 
um, people choosing to have this done because they want to have a more acute sense of hearing. Um, or maybe you could do something very similar with uh, vision, and you could um, augment vision to the point where, oh, now I can see in the ultraviolet and infrared spectra, and um, now I can see, you know, like a like an eagle, um, you know, we can see things like a mile away. Um, you know, the 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 possibilities here are are you know clear, and you start to think about you get beyond the ear and augmenting any sense sense of touch. Uh, sense of uh, smell, um, you know, you think of how remarkable the dog's sense of smell is uh, compared to a human being, and we can't even get close to that with machines yet, but, you know, this is, of course, where things are, are going. Now, this is, this is something that's just completely mind-blowing, uh, at least to me, um, if, if you haven't heard of this. This woman that you see here in the foreground of the picture, not the woman, the woman in the background is, um, I assume, one of the uh, scientists that worked on this thing or engineers that worked on this thing. This woman in the foreground is completely paralyzed. I forget what exactly happened to her. It wasn't, it, it, I think it was some sort of genetic or progressive illness or something. Anyway, she's, she's entirely paralyzed. That arm that you see in front of her is holding a chocolate bar. Um, and that arm is directly connected to her brain. You can see the the um, electrodes there that are that are basically reading brain signals. Uh, now I say directly. I don't remember if it's actually physically impl implanted there or if it's just uh, installed in such a way that it's able to get access to the the brain waves, but. The brain, her brain, has learned how to control that interface and make that arm move with her mind. Okay, we have, throughout human history, this this comes up again and again, and it's all it's called telekinesis or whatever the trans uh, translation of telekinesis is in the language that people were speaking at the time. But it is, it, it is a, an idea that has been around a long time, and it's always been just profound magic. And she's doing it to eat a chocolate bar. And her joke was one small nibble for a woman, one giant bite for brain control interfaces. It, it, it's just it's just mind-boggling that, that we've reached that point where this thing that we dreamed about as, as human beings, uh, probably throughout our entire um, existence, the ability to make a physical object move in the real world with our minds, we can now do it. Um, you think of people wounded in military, uh, people who have been victims of accidents, people who got paralyzed in other fashions. I mean, obviously, this is a fairly crude thing now, right? But, yeah, sure. You, you've seen early automobiles. <laughs> you've seen an automobile from 110 years ago. They were pretty crude as well. And they're pretty darn sophisticated now that at the point where they can park themselves, right, and, and drive themselves. So, yeah, this has a long way to go. But given the exponential nature, again, back to Kurzweil, the exponential nature of how things are, are changing um, technology-wise, you know, don't, don't doubt that within your lifetime, unless you're, you know, considerably older than me, 
that, that you're going to see this stuff moving into the, the mainstream, and it's not just going to be for some sort of novelty shot of a woman eating chocolate bars. So, all pretty good stuff, right? Maybe there's a few little kind of laughable possible downsides, but for the most part, this is this is very good and encouraging stuff. You know, yeah, the internet fridge is a little bit silly, but then again, um, the internet might have struck people as kind of silly at first. It's like, well, why do you need the web? You know, you got email, send email back and forth. You know, the whole web browsers and stuff. I mean, all of it doesn't doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense until it suddenly becomes essential and we can't imagine living without it. Um, and for all of the things that we've been looking at so far, um, the impact of failure is, you know, limited. Yeah, if a cochlear implant has a bug in it, then you can, you know, reboot the thing or reprogram the thing. And, you know, it's, an, it's certainly an inconvenience. Um now, somebody, you know, having problems with the loss of mobility, well, you know, yeah, that'd be more serious. The internet fridge with, the, you know, 16 gallons of milk and the suckling pig, okay. Um, but, but it does get kind of scary. Um, I'd, I'd alluded to the self-driving cars. I'm like, okay. Now, Google is, um, Google is the, is the public face of this. Uh, but, of course, you know, the car manufacturers themselves are certainly in on this as well, but the Google the Google folks are the ones who have been um, you know banging the drum on this thing in public, and so they've been saying that okay these are going to be safer than human drivers. Uh, okay, um, well you know they they could they could very well be, but I mean let's let's think about this for the moment. In the United States there are about uh, I looked at the last decade of statistics and it's pretty constant 10 million vehicle accidents uh, per year um, and in about it some of those accidents of course nobody's injured and most most of them the, the vast majority of them nobody's injured and some of the accidents people are injured and some of the accidents of course there are deaths and there's 36,000 people are killed in vehicle accidents okay you could say well that's that's bad that's that's really bad that's uh, I believe that's more people than uh, American soldiers who were killed in, in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Um, well, it's less less than the number of U.S. Uh, soldiers killed in Vietnam, but you know, still, it's it's, it's a that's a big number, especially when you think about this being a yearly thing and not something spread out over you know a decade. Um, so. Go oh, okay. Well, let's let's take for just a hypothetical that the software-driven cars are a hundred times safer. Okay, so if they're a hundred times safer, then we would go from having ten million vehicle accidents to a hundred thousand vehicle accidents. Okay, so far so good because certainly there it's you know I mean obviously the insurance companies are going to be all over that because you can imagine how much money that saves them. Um, will that show up in your reduced premium? Hmm, I don't know. Maybe. Um, but 360 people killed, if we say 100 times safer. Well, you know, I say, well, that's sure, 360 is better than 36,000. Well, yeah, but this is, these are bugs in software that will result in people being killed. These are not mistakes that drivers make. Um, you know, this gets now to the realm of the preventable, right, in the sense that there was a bug 
that was introduced into the software, the company that was producing the software, the car um, for the car, failed to detect and remove that bug, and as a result, one or more people got killed. That's just a fundamentally different thing than somebody hits a patch of ice in the road and overcorrects, swings their the back end of their car around and causes a um, minivan to, to go off the road and three people get killed in that. It, you know, you can look at that situation and go, well, that's tragic, that's really sad, but, I mean, it's it's ice and it happens and so forth. But when it's a bug in software that's killing somebody, a bug that could have been detected and removed, you know, that's that become people are going to react to that differently. Um, th so there's a number of issues here. You know who's legally responsible. What, what as I mentioned, what what's up with the whole insurance situation? Do I do I even need to be insured, or is the, is the vendor of the car going to be the one insured? Because it's, after all, I'm not driving it. Now I'm sure that the the car vendors are going to say, oh no 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 no, you're because there's this override thing and you can drive it, then, you know, you still have to be insured. But if the software is controlling the car when the accident happens, why should I have to cover that? Um, and then, you know, when people break into stuff, right? Think Sony Pictures. Um, imagine, okay, I'm, I'm a hacker. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a criminal. Um, I hack into a programmable uh, self-driving car and, uh, uh, maybe I use that car to cause a big car accident that distracts the police while I, I don't know, drive a, a truck bomb into uh, Times Square or or just, um, you know, create a huge set of accidents all around the bank and hold up the bank, right? I mean, once once you get to the point where people could hack in and control these vehicles, then obviously they will. Um, I gave this talk in Austria uh, about a month ago, and one of the people came up to me afterwards and said, you know, that thing on the self-driving cars is really scary because, um, you know, I have clients that are in the automobile industry, and they are not very mature in terms of how they think about testing, and, and they're not very mature in terms of how they think about security. So that that obviously is a very alarming thing to hear because, um, you know, they're the, the the G whiz factor with the self-driving cars has apparently gotten way out in front of the quality control. Now, that's scary enough, but when you talk about, you know, car accidents or, you know, a remote control hijacking of the car, we're talking about something that, you know, has a fairly limited impact. Now, obviously, um, if you... Uh, um, drive a truck bomb with a nuclear bomb into Times Square, then we're not talking about limited impact there. We're talking about enormous impact, right? But but in general, you know, we're talking about um, things that impact dozens of people or single, single people, it's one or two people in a car accident, you know, at worst a few thousand. Um, but then you get into this, this issue of the power grid. So the, the, the electrical power grid is become heavily computerized and, and again these um, uh, so-called SCADA systems and I forget what SCADA stands for is uh, something control software control something or another um, this is not anywhere near where we would want it to be with respect to security um, so the 
the grid is hackable. Um, there were some reports about three, three to four months ago um, about the, the, the fact that it's known that, that, that malware has been installed in these SCADA networks that control the grid um, for purposes unknown um, but, and, and by people unknown, you know. And you could say, well, you know, it hasn't done anything yet. Well, yeah, I mean, I got I got a one word, a one word answer for you here: uh, Stuxnet, right? I mean, the, the stuff can be installed and left there, and you know, triggered at a time of someone else's choosing to do God knows what. Now, you might think, well, how bad could it be? Well, if you look back to one of the biggest blackouts in um, U.S. history that happened in August 2003, um, basically blacked out most of the Northeast United States and part of uh, northeastern Canada, I believe, Quebec and uh, Toronto, and, and um, um, Toronto, Ottawa, uh, a few other major cities in Ontario were also affected. Uh, this was a big deal, and and it now you know it was the power was down for you know a while. Um, not days, though. I mean, as I recall, it was like an overnight kind of thing, and it's, people got the power back up, and that's a hassle. But if you had a power outage that lasted for days and days, um, this would be a huge thing. Uh, not, you know, would it be apocalyptic? Well, geez, I don't know. I mean, you, you know, people rely on refrigerated food, and if there's no power and there's no refrigerated food, you know, what's going to happen? you got to have water, and the water is all pumped typically by electricity. Um, you got to be able to cook, you know. So we're not necessarily talking about a complete breakdown of human society, but it could have some very, very significant safety implications. You can't operate on people in a hospital without electricity. And, okay, yeah, they've, you know, backup generators and so forth. Yeah, but, I mean, the backup generators all rely on, diesel being trucked around and the diesel diesel being trucked around relies on traffic control when you got no power you know this would be a it be a major major issue um now i'm talking about a relatively high tech attack here of course you know there are, there are ways of doing this that that where the achilles heel is more of a low tech kind of thing um Transformers. You see the, the upper uh, right or upper left. Excuse me. Uh, there's those big power substation um, transformers. Those things are really hard to come by. And if they were to blow up via, say, a deliberately um, engineered attack that caused the, them to be over uh, overloaded and melted or something, it takes a long time to replace a lot of those transformers. Uh, so. There's a lot of things, a lot of vulnerabilities here that, um, you know, yes, they haven't yet been exploited, but you do not want to, in, in a world like one we're living in, uh, just count on, well, nobody's ever going to do that because nobody has yet. Now, Internet of Things, okay, Internet of Things, refrigerator, convenience, fun, yeah, well, yeah, okay. Um, but you know you can also you can also get paranoid about this now you know Edward Snowden I mean people people have different opinions about Snowden ranging from um, you know this 
super patriot, and that kind of that attitude was on display at the Oscar Awards last week. Um, you know, to the other end of the spectrum where they say, look, the guy's a traitor and, you know, he should be executed. Uh, but setting aside where you stand on the, um, you know, patriot or traitor um, spectrum, uh, let's think about just some facts that were revealed by what Snowden did. What, one of the things that he revealed was the incredible weakness of the NSA's security systems. And this is, of course, ironic since it's the national security agency, right? And yet one guy, a high school dropout, one guy <laughs> managed to abscond with the, the crown jewels, right? Now, you know, you could say, well, yeah, this is not, you know, uh, uh, unprecedented. There was that, that um, uh, Manning, Bradley Manning character who uh, – um, absconded with a, with the whole uh, trove of information from the that military base that turned out to be you know um, turned into WikiLeaks. Well, yeah, but you know that's a military base and um, you know was set up in this in under stressful circumstances so so forth. You you know I'm not explaining that away either. I mean obviously that's an incredible breach, but it's nowhere near as incredible as what Snowden was able to do. How is it that one guy can do that? It's not like one guy in a bank, like a, an employee of a bank, can just walk into the bank vault and walk out with everything. I mean, there are security systems that set up, you know, this called dual, dual authentication things and and so forth. And that that's the way that the nuclear missiles work out in the in, in the Dakota Plains. It not there's not one person that can make those launch even. Even the two people that are sitting down there in the silo can't conspire to set off a nuclear war because they can't make them launch either without certain conditions having been met, which they can't influence, right? But somehow or another, um, the NSA security systems are so poor that uh, one guy, as I said, this one high school dropout, you know, not not even a, a engineer but by education, um, walks out with uh, all this information. Um, okay, so that's that's one thing. The other thing revealed here is, you know, 100% connectivity can basically mean 0% privacy. So I was talking before about the um, having your vitals, uh, vital uh, statistics, health statistics being gathered up by some um, implanted version of a Fitbit that... Uh, um, you know, sends the information to your doctor, and your doctor's able to monitor your health. Well, you know, that might seem like a good idea, you know, especially if you have some sort of chronic illness like diabetes or, you know, something like that. But then, now think about it, that, that's, that thing is going to be able to monitor in real time what's going on with you. Hmm. Um, you basically have no privacy. The most, the, the most, um, basic things about you will be completely revealed. And there was a big uproar recently when this um, uh, car company Uber got in trouble for gathering statistics on what they call flights of glory uh, or rides of glory, which were basically situations where someone ordered an Uber car at uh, like 1 or 2 o'clock in the, in the morning to take them to a place other than their residence and then ordered the Uber car to pick them up at the, the next morning. The, the inference being there that, 
you had managed to secure yourself a um, nice uh, um, amorous interlude, I guess you could say. And um, and this this was the the uh, cause of a lot of sort of locker room boys will be boys jocularity amongst the um, the, the the you know kind of frat boys who who run Uber, um, and they took a lot of heat for it. But I mean, think about that. That's nothing, nothing compared to the kinds of of privacy um, invasion. I guess invasion is not the wrong, not really the right word because you're inviting it. You're inviting the kind of total loss of privacy that that this Fitbit information being, you know, advanced Fitbit kind of information being gathered continuously and and sent around, you know, to your doctor. Well, it's going over the internet, <laughs> you know. Like 1984, if you remember the 1980 in, in the, the movie and the and which was pretty um, faithful rendition of Orwell's book. Basically, everybody had these telescreens in their their houses, which were not only broadcasting but were watching them and gathering information on them. Uh, the um, Smith character shown here, played by John Hurt. Is, is amazed when he goes into um, what, what, a member of what's called the inner party's house and sees that the guy is able to turn off his telescreen. Um, you know, it's be, the, the, the upsides are certainly there, but it's also, you know, um, there are downsides. Um, and not only just from a government point of view, but also, you know, people playing pranks, like, you know, people doing this kind of silly, um, you know, teenage boy kind of behaviors like the Rides of Glory stuff, but, you know, also criminal criminal misuse. Uh, if I know that you're not in the house, well, you know, now's a good time to break into your house. And certainly, you know, location information would be one of the things that would be gathered up by this kind of embedded Fitbit that I'm um, talking about. So certainly we see a situation here where the law and the technology are just not, they're not mature. I mean, we can we can do things, but it's like, well, should we? Now, let, let's turn to the testing and quality implications here. Um, now, what you see on this slide is is uh, a picture of a dog. Uh, the dog's name uh, was Laika. Uh, Laika is Russian for Barker, and um, Laika is there in a, a mock-up of the rig that she was going to ride in Sputnik 2. Remember, Sputnik 1 is the first, first human-made object in space. Sputnik 2 uh, the second human-made object in space. And their idea, the Russians' idea, was that they were going to send Laika up there and um, figure out what... Uh, what would happen to a to a living organism in space? They were, you know, can, basically the idea being, well, can we put people up there, right? So they were going to send her up there and gather information about her, kind of like the, you know, I was describing with the Fitbit. Basically, they were going to gather health information on her as she went through her ride. Um, now, uh, sadly, there was no provision made uh, for Leica's return, um, and Leica Leica did not return. Um, Though it turns out that even had they made a provision for it to be for there to be reentry and recovery, um, Leica would not have survived. She apparently died of um, heat prostration. Um, one of the things that the Russians learned was that they needed to provide better, uh, better way of of um, 
controlling the temperatures in in the cabins. Okay. Um, now, so what what is what does Leica have to do with this? Well, you know, in in the case of the space program, both the United States and Russia were dealing with these really poorly understood situations, right? And it just had like very little insight into um, what kinds of problems they were going to have to solve, right? Um, so, you know, they, they did test. Now, you could say that the test that was done using poor Leica here was um, particularly inhumane, and in fact, some of the, the, the Russian scientists in, who, who sent Leica up actually deeply regret it. Uh, you can read some of their kind of apologies after 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 the fact apologies to Leica on the internet. Um, but you know, stepping back and just thinking, okay, you know, what's your test basis in 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 the situation with the Internet of Things, the cyborgs, and um, you know, the, the the singularity? I mean, it, it, we what what would it mean to cover something adequately? What constitutes an adequate test? Um, since we are in this sort of nonlinear situation, how do you even think about what's going to happen in the future and identify these future scenarios? Again, remember, you know, as I said, um, Dorner's book about you know the logic of failure shows that we human beings are very bad at anticipating uh, what's going to happen next in, in nonlinear exponential change scenarios. So how are we going to do that? And even if we can, then you know, there's this issue of what's the test oracle. What 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 constitutes a pass? I mean, certainly we have to be a little bit more fine grained than doesn't kill lots of people, right? I mean, we have to have a more sophisticated oracle than that. Um, and you know, this is kind of similar to uh, the situation in the, the early days of the space program. Except the thing with the space program was, unless you were actually on the the, the nose of the rocket, you weren't really part of the experiment. But now we're all part of the experiment because this is be, this is being played out in the real world. People get hyped up about genetically modified organisms and so forth, um, and, and the, the issue being, oh my God, you know what happens if these these genes, you know, spill out into the real world and there's unintended side effects? Well, if you want to get alarmed about something, don't, don't worry much about genetically modified corn or wheat or cotton or something like that. Worry about the unanticipated and unintended side effects of all of this technology that is being unleashed um, that we basically don't understand fundamental questions like what's the test basis and what are the test oracles and what will it mean to adequately cover this stuff? What's an adequate level of risk mitigation? In some cases, the risks aren't even identified. And, okay, suppose we did apply testing best practices to all of this stuff. Suppose we were able to solve the oracle problem, solve the basis problem, and go, okay, when we, we can apply testing best practices to this stuff just like we do with banking software, insurance software, or something like that. Well, okay, let's look at a little analogy here. Um, in manufacturing, modern manufacturing is capable of achieving what's called a Six Sigma level of quality. You've probably heard this phrase Six Sigma before, and basically what this means is that there's three defects per million items. Um, now, let's compare that to software. Um, Capers-Jones has done a number of industry studies, and 
according to his studies, typically, if you create a million-line C++ program, that's going to have thir over 13,000 defects in it. it. When it's released, I'm not talking about 13,000 defects in it, most of those being removed prior to release. I'm saying that's, that's the number in it when it is released. Okay? Now, <clears throat> what if um, we go from the typical defect detection and removal effectiveness of 85% uh, to 99%. So some of our clients do achieve 99% defect detection effectiveness, and if all those defects that are detected are, are removed, you're still talking about 1,000 defects. 1,000 defects, okay? Not three, 1,000. Okay, now you might say, well, lines of code is the wrong measure. Fine, give me another one. Function points, okay, it's the same. You're going to come up with the same thing. Convert the lines of code into function points. Take a look at it. It's, it's still, you're going to be a couple, three, four orders of magnitude, no matter what metric of, of size you adopt, um, away from, from what manufacturing is able to do. Um, now, we entrust our lives every day to manufactured and engineered objects, but we, we've come to expect that kind of level of quality, that three three defects per million items. Now, now here's another thing, too, to think about. Three defects per million items means something different in the case of a manufactured item, because a manufactured item either is defective or it's not. But in the case of software, every piece of software, barring some sort of weird glitch, Every piece of software that's out there that's a of the, uh, the same release of the other, it's, they're all they all have the same defects. So my copy of Word and your copy of Word, if they are the same version of Microsoft Word, have exactly the same thousand, thirteen thousand, whatever number of defects in it. So that means actually, what we're talking about is a hundred percent defecting rate in software. Because all, all of the software has defects in it. There is no defect-free software. Let that sink in for a minute. We are way, way out of line with what people have come to expect from engineered and manufactured objects. And we are going to have to become a real, honest-to-God engineering practice that is able to achieve uh, this, that same kind of reliability that manufactured objects have. Um, and this is going to have to happen very, very soon because we are getting to the point where we're doing things with technology that are not just gee whiz and they're not just stuff that happens off in a periphery somewhere. Our whole lives are wrapped up in this stuff. So we as a profession need to step up to the challenge of how do we get that good. Um, I, I'm afraid I don't have answers to that. I, I mean, I wish I did. I wish I, I could look forward 100 years, 200 years in the future of where software engineering, software quality, and software testing we're going to be and say these are the things that we need to do now. Um, I don't. But we need to make, we need to start with, a level of humbleness that I think is um, completely missing from um, our approach to this right now. That, you know, it's that typical kind of 
engineer thing of, whoa, cool, look at this fun thing we can make. But at the same time, we're not stepping back and going, whoa, but wait a minute, we're not, we're not achieving what our other, our other cousins in the engineering world are, um, and, and we need to get there and quick. So to, to wrap this up before we start taking some, some questions, um, you know, I think if you look at entertainment, literature, art, you know, most of it has been cautionary tales. And again, there you get Asimov and Heinlein and Card and so forth who are much more positive about where these things are going to be going. But, um, you know, generally things are... Um, seen pretty dimly but they're also also fairly apocalyptic um in a lot of cases and uh, you know that makes for a good story but reality usually doesn't play itself out um in a series of well organized um acts like in a play that you can go oh, this and this and this it's usually a little more nuanced and harder to uh, predict what's going to happen what is clear is that there is tremendous benefit um, available. We saw examples of that, and, and in some cases, just miraculous, you know, life-transforming um, benefits, like the you know being able to restore mobility and thus dignity to people who've been paralyzed, and uh, the ability to make deaf the deaf hear and the blind see. I mean, you know, this is these these are these are abilities that have been called miracles, right? I mean, these are the kind of miracles that were ascribed to religious figures uh, as as by way of proving their connection to God, and, and, and here we are now doing it. Um, but we're doing it imperfectly, and there's a lot of there's a lot of risk, and we need to we need to be, as I said, sober about that and, and humble. Um, and and we also need to, as engineers, help through that humble and sober approach, help people in other um, realms of society understand the limitations and work with people in the legal profession, for example, to, to try to help them keep up um, and uh, do that in parallel with um, um, urgently searching for ways to become more sophisticated um, and to become more like real uh, engineers um, and, and achieve those uh, kinds of levels of quality that other engineered objects have um, so that um, we're not the guy who tested the driverless car that killed the family of five or the guy who wrote the software that drove the driverless car into the minivan and killed the, the 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 seven um, retirees who were on their vacation. Um, nobody wants to be that guy. Um, it's good that we don't want to be that guy, um, but we're going to have to be different in terms of our skills and abilities than we are now in order to not be that guy. All right, so I'm going to put the advertisement up here while I go through and do the uh, Q&A. Um, a question from Philippe here submitted prior to the start of the um, presentation. He says, uh, any previous webinar on testing return on investment or one to come soon? Um, that's a good point. I probably should do another one of those real soon. I haven't talked on that topic 
Maybe not. Uh, not on a webinar. I certainly haven't. If, if I have, it has been a long time. So that is something that I should uh, should revisit. So thanks for that suggestion. Um, uh, Bernard um, comments. Good to see you here, Bernard. You are doing well, mon frere. Uh, it says, hi, Rex. Nice presentation. Comment on slide 10 regarding insurance. You have to insure your dog in case the dog bites someone. Same thing for your self-driving car. Well, yeah, except that my dog, if my dog bites someone, there, there, are, some, there are possibilities here. One is the dog has never bitten anyone before. Um, and at least in the United States, the rule is, that, the general rule is that every dog gets one free bite. Uh, meaning if the dog's never bitten anyone before, you really have no way of knowing that the dog would bite someone. Now, after that, you would have to, you'd have a problem, yes. Um, now, if I have a dog that has a proclivity to bite, um, then I should know that because, you know, in that case, the dog is, is going to behave aggressively towards people and possibly even aggressively towards me, and I'm going to know that. Go, oh, well, if I take the dog out, you know, in, in public, I need to have the dog muzzled, have the dog properly restrained. You know, I've got some responsibilities. Yeah, the dog, the dog has agency, right? The dog, the, the dog has um, some amount of free will, but I am aware of what that dog's personality is, and I am supposed to control that. In the case of the driverless car, that's not true at all. I have no way of knowing, um, at least at the current practice, I have no way of knowing who wrote the code? Who tested the code? How thoroughly tested it was? You know, what was the test basis? What did? How did you? How thoroughly did you cover it? What are your test oracles? You know, currently, I'm sure in any any um, of these driverless car people, if you approach them and say, "Well, you got to reveal that," they'd say, "Oh, no, 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 that's a trade secret." Okay, I can see why they would want it to be a trade secret. But what I'm saying here is that the interests of society outweigh that. That the, in the interest of society, that's, that kind of information is going to have to be made available. How this stuff is being tested, how it's being, you know, what, what, what the oracles are, what, is, what constitutes adequate coverage. Software has to come out from behind this um, nonsense of, uh, you know, well, we're not going to talk about our bugs and all this all trade secrets and stuff. No, you know, it's, this is part of how we stymie ourselves because... We don't share information about that, and, and at least not as openly as we should. And thus, there's there's no accountability on, on the side of the people making the software, effectively. And as me, as the owner of a product that makes things move in the real world through software, I have no way of knowing what it's, that, that software's level of quality is. And that's so... I would argue I can't I can't buy insurance or I should not be forced to buy insurance for that because I have no control over how that thing behaves. Now Keith here says FY regarding hacking into car electronics. Um that's a Forbes link uh he sends um let me see if I can send this out to you guys. Oh shoot, come on. Okay. Uh, can I? I'm trying to select it. Ah, there we go. Okay. Let's see if I can send that out to all you guys. It'll come out via the chat, 
I'm not sure exactly where you would see that. Yeah, there we go. Okay, I haven't read this yet, but I will. Uh, Keith, thanks for sending that on. I'll, as I said, I'll send that out to everybody. Uh, it looks like this is something that's already happened. <laughs> it's no, no big surprises. The title is 14-Year-Old Hacks Connected Cars with Pocket Money. So I'm, I'm assuming that he's got some sort of RFID reader that he's, you know, and then programmable RFID reader allowing him to figure out how to how to get information out of them or something worse than that. Uh, Bernard uh, helpfully provided the definition of SCADA, supervisory control and data acquisition. So thank you for that. Uh, Enix says, what do you think of the future of development styles such as Agile or Spiral in a world where a bug in an incredibly complex product can kill someone? Um, well, okay, so in, in terms of this, this the, the Agile or Spiral approaches, you know, I mean, Spiral famously is being used to build the, uh, um, the, the various kinds of missile defense systems, you know, that were once ridiculed as Star Wars. Um, you know, I, I, I think anybody any anybody who back in the 1980s was running around labeling Ronald Reagan a buffoon and making cracks about Star Wars really should do an assessment of what that that iron dome system is capable of that was deployed in um Israel um you know and it's it's rapidly getting there for other kinds of missiles as well and and so you know can it work over a long period of time yeah and but of course, there with those, we're talking about defensive systems, um, and and they have had failures. I mean, there was the Patriot missiles that, you know, um, were developed again using that same kind of approach, and there was a famous a famous problem with the Patriot uh, missiles in that they weren't designed to be stationary for long periods of time. And during the first Gulf War, they um, had them set up and running to outside of barracks to protect the barracks from an incoming Scud missile and got blown up by a Scud missile, and it turned out that the problem was that the thing had run so long that there had been a counter overflow. Um, and when the counter overflow, the impact of the counter overflow basically was when it tried to calculate the interception uh, location for the, when the Patriot missile battery tried to calculate the interception location for the incoming Scud missile, the counter overflow led, led to it calculating interception interception position under the surface of the earth and you know obviously that's not going to work and people got killed um, so I think the bigger issue here is you know Enoch Agile has been held out by some of its promoters as th this thing that is going to um, uh, completely change um, the uh, whole dynamic of software and, and 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 quality, right? I mean, you hear advocates of test-driven development, for example, saying that if I've got a set of automated TDD tests, I can refactor, that is, change my code anytime I want, and I don't have to worry about breaking anything. I mean, that, that statement is stunning in the degree of ignorance about the reality of testing that is revealed by it. Yet you will hear people 
renowned people saying exactly that. Um, while that kind of, of um, credulity um, and, um, uh, you know, um, blind faith in, the, in, in these life cycles as the be-all, do-all, save-all of software engineering, while that exists and we are not making progress. Now, I certainly believe that there is there are plenty of places where agile and spiral methodologies work and make sense. Um, and I'm not saying you, know, you can't build safety critical systems um, in part using agile systems, but I mean I think that the main worry I have is this idea of people stepping back and going, well, there that fixed that problem. You know, now we've got now software quality is all under control. Um, no, it's it can be part of the solution when used appropriately, but by itself, I mean, for our clients that are using Agile as opposed to sequential lifecycle models, I can't say that we're seeing great differences in terms of the level of quality that they're producing. So there, to me, is no credible, um, quantified data out there, no, no credible studies um, that would indicate that the kinds of, you know, orders of magnitude improvements in the level of quality produced using Agile methods have anywhere near been um, achieved. And, you know, barring that, uh, I guess I'm going to remain not skeptical of the methods, but skeptical and, and you know, um, not just just skeptical, but but downright critical of the kinds of messianic claims that some of the people who are profiting from um, selling these agile methods are, are making. Uh, let's see, so Bernard um, says, uh, regarding my, my comments on slide, slide 14 at Six Sigmas, in order to achieve Six Sigma and ensure that software is really good, this means that customers will accept to purchase software as a price at a price that is similar to the price of high-quality cars. Offshoring pushes, costs to the Offshoring pushes costs to the bottom, and this is not reflected in anything else. If costs are low, all the developer tester really invest in, uh, will, will the developer or tester really invest in enough effort? I'm not sure, unfortunately. Well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, part, part of the problem is something that Capers Jones did a really good job of pointing out in his book, his, his most recent book in the economics of software quality. He said part of the, one of the big issues we have in software engineering is that we don't have meaningful productivity metrics. Um, so if you measure tester productivity, for example, in terms of the number of tests executed per um, month uh, or year, I mean, obviously that's a completely bogus metric um, you know I mean I can take I can take any set of test cases that you've got and I can split each test case into two or more test cases that that make sense as a test case um, and send my productivity metric through the roof um, or I can take test cases and combine them together and crash the same productivity metric and that just assumes that that assumes that the test cases are of the same size now, of course if they're not the same size then you know, you got a, you got another issue. Same with lines of code. 
And people have been trying to deal with this by looking at bed function points and so forth. But, you know, it's just we don't, we don't have a good way of measuring productivity. And so in absence of that, what, what get the way that things get measured in ter- is in terms of dollars per hour, right? So, yeah, this, this ends up being, well, the, the only thing we really know how to measure is how much we're paying people on an hourly basis. And so then the focus becomes on that. Um, now, has, has offshoring um, led to uh, decreases in quality? Um, I've certainly had a lot of anecdotal reports from clients uh, to that effect. Um, but, you know, I, one of the things, I, I hesitate to be categorical about this because, again, I don't know that there's a lot of... Um, valid statistically valid studies out there that would quantify how that would happen because again not only do we not have good productivity metrics we don't even really have good quality metrics so you know when we say if we said led to a decrease in quality how exactly are we measuring that are we talking about like cost of external failure um using cost of quality it's it's it, it's we're, we're in a funny place. I mean, Jones's Capers Jones's analogy uh, that that he likes to use is that we're um, um, like medicine before the the, the germ theory. So the, the doctors really didn't understand how people got sick. Um, the analogy that I prefer is that we're kind of like where the Romans were as civil engineers, that they could build stuff. Um, and and it was impressive and it kind of worked, but um, in some cases it worked really well. It was, it was substantially over-engineered, like you know there's still Roman aqueducts up in Europe, but they had they had no way of understanding um, why it worked. Right? They didn't they didn't have calculus, they didn't they didn't have any any mathematical understanding of physics. They they didn't understand chemistry, so they couldn't understand how concrete worked. They, you know, the physics and the calculus thing they can't understand why a bridge or an aqueduct stands up to begin with. Um, you know, I said choose your analogy, but either way, we're we're not we're not anywhere close. Um, David Davies says, uh, "What are your thoughts on the Internet of Things with regard to laws of different countries?" with respect to what software is allowed to do. For example, the EU and their growing privacy laws versus, say, China. Uh, Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it does get more complicated when you start talking about um, the international angle of it, doesn't it? Um, Well, I mean, just, you know, Snowden is an interesting illustration of that right of here's here's Snowden he's living in Russia on a, um, what I would expect is is probably going to be a revolving um, visa you know it's it, it given the current situation an extremely regrettable situation between the United States and Russia um, and and how we ended up back in a Cold War with Russia just 20 years after we ended it is a crying shame but a whole another discussion um, Given that situation, you know Snowden's going to be there, you know, probably indefinitely, and 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 for for seeking refuge for doing things that I'm sure in Russia itself probably would have gotten the land of the guy on death row. 
Um, so, you know, the ironies abound. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in terms of your question on privacy, um, you know, I'm sure the Chinese would argue, as they often do in these situations, that there are significant and relevant cultural differences that must be taken into account in all facets of um, human endeavor. And, um, you know, this, is, this has been sort of a, a refrain um, of, of the Chinese Communist Party for, for years. Um, and I guess there's, there's some validity in, in that. But, yes, I mean, <laughs> to your point, if you have a situation where um, these privacy laws differ considerably, um, yet you have an Internet of things that couldn't care less about physical borders, then that creates a really tricky situation, right? I mean, you think of the the the, the right, the so-called right to be forgotten in Europe now, and then that that guy uh, Spain who won that case against the against Google. Um, you know, Google is vociferously against those kinds of rules, and and here in the United States, what they're doing, they they have argued, and uh, I don't know whether there's case law at the Supreme Court level on this yet. They, they have argued that our the First Amendment to our Constitution here guarantees them the right to to um, put that kind of information out there, but you know, the Europeans are saying no. If somebody can see that information in Europe, then I don't care where the information is domiciled. If the information can be domiciled in the United States, it can be domiciled anywhere. It doesn't matter. It matters where it's delivered, and uh, you have to take it down. So, yeah, that's going to be a really interesting um, dimension, David, that this is going to, you know, th this is the – the fact that the laws will differ from one country to another with respect to privacy and a whole bunch of other things, criminal liability, civil liability, et cetera, et cetera, is, is going to complicate this even further. Um, now, I'm, don't get me wrong. I am not an advocate for the uh, one worldwide government. I'm totally opposed to that kind of thing. Um, now, I do have some sympathy, as I said before, for the Chinese perspective that uh, different cultures, different laws, different uh, social norms, and so forth do exist. Um, and by having different states is one of the ways that we deal with that. Um, but uh, it does it does make things more complicated. That's for sure. Uh, I, um, comment here from. Um, Bernard, uh, regarding insurance and the dog, someone might slip on some dog dropping, stumble on the leash, etc. Um, yes, but but again, those would all be things that if they were to happen, um, effectively they would be happening through negligence on my part as the owner. Uh, or you know, or and of course, there's you know the unavoidable circumstance. I'm standing there, doing nothing. I'm holding the dog on the leash. The leash, the dog is perfectly under control. The dog sees a cat, 
when the dog sees another dog, goes jutting off in an entirely unpredictable direction, um, sending the leash out directly in front of a passing jogger who trips over it, falls, and hurts their knee. Um, now, I could say, well, geez, I had no way of controlling the appearance of the cat, but yeah, I mean, I'm still responsible for that. And that happened, and you know, I've, I've the dog may have free will, but the dog is my dog, and I'm responsible for the dog's actions. Just like you know, if you got your child out in public, and your child is doing something that's that's disruptive or destructive, then you know that's your your problem. Um, again, I just don't think that transfers over to the self-driving car, because in the in the case of the self-driving car, if the self-driving car runs into someone, kills someone, causes an accident, um, does whatever it does, it's that is a failure in the in the ISTQB sense, right? The, the discrepancy between the actual and the expected result due to a defect in the software. Then I, I have no way of of knowing that. I have no way of of um, Again, having any level of confidence in in the software, how well it's been tested, you know what the test basis was, what was uh, seen to be adequate coverage of that basis, what oracles were used, none of that. So, it, it's like being I'm taking a dog for a walk, and I don't know the dog, right? Um, let's see, we got a comment from Pete. Question. He says, you may have already answered this question. How does one get involved in security testing? We have a good base for testing software applications, but what courses do you recommend for security testing? Recently, our company has become victim to hacks, and we don't have a security department. So as a tester, we need to think about security uh, when we are testing. Well, there is a very... Uh, well, you have a couple options. So, so, so sort of a entry-level type approach to security testing is what's called the Security Plus um, certification, um, and that's a you know you, you could you can learn you can learn a lot of good things. I I went through that program as part of uh, of a uh, set of Villanova courses that I took. It included a, a course on security. Um, security testing, and it was preparatory to the Security Plus certification. I took the exam, and you know, yeah, it's it's useful. It'll it'll teach you enough to do some basic security testing, as well as being aware of what you're not testing, so what risks you're exposed to. Um, and it is something that you can get your head around fairly quickly in a couple months. Um, now, the the Villanova course that, that I took for it that was part of developing courseware for them. I don't want that to be my comment to be construed as a recommendation for that. There, you've got a lot of other options out there. I'll look look around, see what your options are. We, meaning RBCS, do not have uh, such a course, so you know I've got no I have no dog in this fight. Now the more the more um, involved certification out there is the CISP. CISSP, I believe, is the, the the exact acronym, and I forget what it certified information system security professional or something along those lines. That one is a lot harder and takes a lot longer, but will of course teach you. You'll you'll learn a lot more in the course of getting that certification. Um, so what you might do is start to start by studying for the Security Plus and get get that under your belt, and then um, move up to the uh, CISP certification after 
you've done that. Um, let's see, question or comment from RPAD here. Uh, some think that quality issues with such autonomous systems can be addressed by autonomous self-healing mechanisms. The system would recognize a fault and modify itself to fix it. But how the system would know the correct behavior in the first place, exactly. Yeah, uh, you know, it has to, the system has to be able to recognize that the behavior was undesirable and, and try to take, take steps to fix that. Uh, now, okay, so a self-driving car, certainly you can see how it could be programmed to, any time it got into an accident, to do a post-mortem or retrospective, whatever you want, on all of the telemetry that it had been gathering up to during and after the moment of the accident to figure out what went wrong and reprogram itself so that it would never make that same mistake again. And then, of course, upload that fix to the mothership, wherever, whatever the mothership is, Google or whoever, uh, so that that fix can be propagated to all the other systems. Yes, you could see how those kinds of things could be done. But notice that it does it does involve having an accident first, an accident in which somebody might be killed, right? And, and who is liable for that? Who is responsible for that? How do, how do we as a society hold an organization accountable? I mean, we certainly do not want to say, okay, Ford, Mercedes, Google, whoever, you can release whatever you want into the general public, and it's okay if it has accidents as long as it's, self-healing and it will never and the system will never make that same mistake again no uh, I'm not willing to give them a pass on that and I don't think we should as a society I don't think we should at all that 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 you know that, because that's back to the every dog gets one free bite except that we're not talking about a dog bite here we're talking about dead people and that says that's not okay I'm not willing to give people a pass on it especially when I see the failure to apply well-known best practices in testing in organizations around the world. So, no, uh, you know, because if, if, if in spite of the diligent application of known best practices, bugs slip out anyway, that's one thing. But, I, you know, the diligent application of known best practices in testing is the exception and not the rule. And until it's the rule, then, no, I would not be inclined to, give organizations a pass on, uh, well, we killed somebody, but it's okay because we'll never our, our car will never kill anybody that way again. Uh, final comment here from Bernard, um, and I'm not saying final from Bernard, just final a final comment, comma, from Bernard. Some years ago, there was a German auto manufacturer that was found guilty of creating an accident because the airbag deployed before the accident and generated an accident. <laughs> not surprising. Subcontractor developing software for the airbag, um, and the subcontractor was in another country, Poland, if I'm correct. Um, yeah, so there is there certainly is some precedent for holding holding manufacturers account um, accountable for negligence, and, and and but I just I think we need to see a lot more of that. Um, you know, so for example, there was a well-known situation here in the United States where a company um, 
TJ Maxx, um, set up what it knew to be relatively weak security systems in its retail outlets, justified those by saying, well, the um, PCI uh, um, standard, the pre uh, uh, Plastic Card Institute or whatever PCI stands for, sort of credit cards basically, doesn't require us to be more secure than this. So they're going to put up these weak encryption um, wireless networks, even though we know that the encryption is weak. It got hacked, and it was at that time one of the biggest hacks in history. Now, it's since been overtaken by events, but, I mean, the thing that was stunning there was they, they TJ Maxx totally got a pass on that. Nothing happened to them. Now, now what's what a, a positive trend lately is that the cost of getting hacked has actually gotten to the point where um, companies can't just blow it off, um, and they can't just pass on those costs to the credit card companies and so forth because credit card companies are getting tired of it. So I think, I think security is promising in the sense that um, the pain is going to start to be felt by the people who are being negligent and they'll be held accountable for it, and um, you know these problems will, those kinds of problems will be solved. I just hope that that happens at a pace which is adequate, um, given the level of risk. Okay, so um, thanks to all of you for a fascinating um, set of um, discussion points to go over. I enjoyed the the heck out of this uh, webinar as I have every time I've given this presentation. It's, um, I think interesting and and useful for us as professionals to step back from the the technological and the project management side of this stuff from time to time and just reflect on you know societal implications um, and and you know what what is the stuff that we're doing that we've we've that we've basically dedicated our lives to doing what does it mean um, so I think it's worth doing. Um, Anyway, to close the session, a little bit more about the resources available through RBCS. Um, as most of you know, we run these free webinars once a month, so please check our website, rbcs-us.com, to sign up. If you would like a special webinar presentation for your company only of uh, this webinar or on any other topic related to software testing, please contact us at info at rbcs-us.com or via our website. If you don't already receive our regular free newsletter, you can sign up. Again, rbcs-us.com. So it'll get you discounts on consulting and training services along with a regular newsletter. It includes a featured article on software testing and quality and news about what RBCS and its partners are up to lately. Uh, we are on Twitter, at RBCS, for the RBCS account, um, at Leica Test Dog. That's my personal Twitter account. And we're also on Facebook, uh, rbcs-inc. Uh, do remember to check your email over the next couple of days because you might be the lucky winner of a free e-learning drawing from RBCS. Uh, you were registered for this random drawing simply by attending this free event. Um, don't forget to check out our digital library. Uh, these webinars are recorded, so if you found this interesting and want to recommend it to some of your colleagues, um, it'll be posted out there in the next uh, few days. It's also on our YouTube channel. You can subscribe to the YouTube channel, and we have podcasts of these uh, webinars that um, can be um, downloaded uh, either you go to like iTunes and enter RBCS podcast or there's an RSS feed on the website so those are all out there and all uh, um, all freely available uh, we offer these free re resources as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS we are a not just-for-profit company 
concludes the webinar. Thanks to all for joining us today.